0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to All the Film Things. I'm your host, Elizabeth, and today we are talking with Max Alvarez. Max Alvarez is a film historian, educator, and published author. He has a plethora of credits for his work in film. He started his career in film indexing film reviews for the Variety newspaper, which was later published in 1982 by the Scarecrow Press. Max was also a film critic for the Milwaukee Journal from 1992 to 1995 and The Washington Diplomat from 1997 to 2000. For about seven years, beginning in 1998, Max programmed over 100 film events in Washington, DC for the National Museum of Women in the Arts. He has given lectures on a variety of incredible film topics, many at the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, DC. In addition to writing articles published in various film journals, he is also a published author of three books with two, The Crime Films of Anthony Mann, and The Cinephile's Guide to the Great Age of Cinema, available for purchase on Barnes & Noble's website. Max is currently working on a film noir titled We Are the Damned, and is also a guest lecturer with New Plaza Cinema. You can find many of his incredible lectures and conversations on New Plaza Cinema's website or on their YouTube account. It is my great privilege to welcome Max Alvarez. Thank you very much for joining me today.
1: Thank you for having me, Elizabeth. It is a real pleasure to be here.
0: I was looking through your vast list of credits and it's clear that film is a very important part of your life. So have you always been interested in film?
1: I have Elizabeth. It really was passed on to me from my parents who were both psychologists and psychologists take cinema very seriously, sometimes too seriously. So I grew up in a very cinema savvy household, the idea of not only going to the cinema, But discussing it afterwards and analyzing it and debating it and approaching everything, not just from a popular entertainment perspective, but from a filmmaking perspective and becoming familiar with who made these things. And that definitely influenced my life moving forward. I just happened. I just automatically seemed to move in that direction. Anything film related.
0: Having parents who analyzed films, did that further your interest in film or did that deter you?
1: I think like all good children there was some rebellion probably there. I think that the rebellion occurred in in the terms of my own interpretation of films that we had previously seen together as a family but in all seriousness, it definitely encouraged my interest and it isn't as though they said you need to work in film they say do whatever that interests you but it's that film and the visual arts were what motivated me and it certainly, having this very enthusiastic film atmosphere growing up motivated me to want to move further in that in that area or that discipline.
0: Was there a film that stands out to you that was heavily analyzed in front of you as a kid? Well, the
1: one that had the biggest impact on me was Truffaut's The 400 Blows, which I saw, and I, I unfortunately, as a researcher, I can tell you exactly when. It was December 1967, I was seven years old, And it was at the Strand Theater in Milwaukee. They had just run The Sound of Music for two years as a road show. They were waiting for Valley of the Dolls for Christmas. And they had a block of time to fill. And they booked films from the Janus film collection, including the 400 Blows. So why my parents thought that taking me, a seven-year-old child, to see this devastating film is is a question. But I was so overwhelmed by that movie and... I remember sitting next to my father, there weren't many people in the cinema, but it was this massive screen, seeing it in black and white Franco. And I do remember my father's commentary at certain points. Oh, look for this scene. Oh, this is a great scene, it's very funny. Just hearing that observation from him, in a way I think influenced me to look at films a different way. That's the earliest that I can think of a moment where I was starting to realize this cinema was something very, very important as an art form. Even as a kid, I was able to figure that out. But that's where I trace its origins in my life.
0: Of all films, with that one being so focused on a child being sent away for wrong behavior, that is must make such an impression. <laughs>
1: well and it, it isn't though i grew up in a household like my parents were very nice they weren't as awful as the young boy's parents in that film yet you can't help but feel the pain watching that and it was around i think probably was around that year that i maybe saw a pan and scan version of rebel without a cause for the first time and once again my parents weren't like james dean's i didn't have his issues but you feel this compassion for those young characters when you see these films
0: There's a string of films that I've found that have that same rebellious and just based on other people's behavior towards others. Largent is another one that came to mind. And then that was a great one. And then Bicycle Thieves leading to crime. All three excellent films.
1: Largent, I remember walking into that very innocently. I don't think I had seen a Bresson picture and i was living not far this was in washington dc from the french cultural institute the la maison francaise and they were running a print of it i said oh i'll walk to it and see this nice french film and devastating movie that definitely even though i saw that as as an adult an incredibly powerful film and bicycle thieves i remember seeing that i was a teenager when i saw that and uh, i didn't grow up in italy after world war ii but how can you not be impacted by that film and even by L'Argent.
0: By a th- that ending was very powerful and really resonated with me.
1: Oh, as it did with Generations. It was a new kind of cinema, taking the cameras into the streets. People had done that, but at the level of, I guess, socio-political, sociological study of human suffering after the war, that was definitely a groundbreaking achievement.
0: At what point in your career did you call yourself a film historian or did you become a film historian?
1: I was self-taught in that sense as a teenager. I innocently walked into one of those what was I thinking projects. I was at the library, I was 15 or so, and I was trying to look for an index to Variety's film reviews. There wasn't one. And I remember my mother saying to me, very friend, friendly way. Well, you know what you need to do, don't you? And I said, Oh, I need to create an index myself. You know, what an idiot, right? So I spent way too much time in the years to come pre computer going to the library with index cards and pens and going through microfilm and having shoe boxes and alphabetical order. And that was my, I didn't know I was a film historian, but I was studying history. You go through 73 years of show business history on microfilm and in battered, bound editions of variety, you're bound to pick up some knowledge. And then my first official job as a film historian was working for the historian D. Richard Bayer, uh, who had Hollywood Film Archive at the time. And he hired me to work with him and a few other people on a massive indexing project going through periodicals, indexing periodicals. Some of the indexes were published, trade paper indexing. And that's also where I guess you could say I honed my skills as a historian. And that would have been in my early 20s.
0: So was that always your goal to become a film historian or was that just ingrained in you from being a kid?
1: It was ingrained. I think that filmmaking was always something that I felt was a true passion and I, I sort of touched upon it. In the background, when time allowed, whether it was filming in 8mm or Super 8 or experimenting with found footage, that was always the real passion. But work as a film historian or studying film history is something that became an addiction. I mean, I I had to find out everything I could about the past and film history. And the more films I saw, the more I wanted to learn about that past and what led to it. So I didn't, it's funny, I didn't really think of myself as a film historian until when I was doing it for many, many years. I think it became more of a label that I attached to myself. Once I was at that women's museum job you mentioned, once I started giving talks at the Smithsonian Institution, that's when that uh, moniker seemed to have an impact.
0: What was the most important thing you learned from indexing film reviews?
1: From indexing film reviews, the most important thing I learned That's a that's that's a that's a tough one. I think the one thing I learned that critics I don't think ever learn is that you can't always go with your initial impression on something. When you see a movie that hasn't been released yet, you're among the first people to see it and comment on it. And you're under tremendous deadlines as variety trade paper critics were. And as I was later on, when I became a film critic, you're responding emotionally to something right away. You don't really have time to process it, to think about it, to hang out, do some research. In, in my time, it would have been going to the library, reading some books, maybe revisiting the film again before you write about it. You have a very short window to bang out a review, and sometimes you miss by a mile what the movie was trying to say or the main elements of the film that were truly effective. Sometimes you nail it. And, and there were many reviews that in my indexing experience that they got it right the first time, but there were notorious examples where they were totally off on the film's appeal. One of my very favorites is Jean Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast, which everyone needs to see from 1946. The Variety review was about this size. I think that's an exaggeration. It was a paragraph. It said, this is never going to open in the U.S. No one's going to want to see it. And it's stuff like that 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 stuck out with me, where it was always funny encountering those stories because as a critic, it's very easy to get caught up in your deadlines and not see the bigger picture. That was my big takeaway, I think.
0: That's very topical right now because Cannes is happening. People are coming out with film reviews instantly. I mean, Killers of the Flower Moon just debuted it at Cannes, and right. there are already reviews out. And... You also touched on the importance of rewatching and rediscovering films. I'm very much a rewatcher. I think Easy Rider took me. Each time I watch it, I I love it even more. So, I think it's very important to rewatch films. I
1: agree, and it's it's funny though when I look back and realize so many of the films that I reviewed professionally I didn't see a second time. I'm not proud of that, mind you, but it is important to revisit things and. This is a bizarre example, please forgive me. This is not a very sophisticated example, but I had the strangest experience recently when, I forgot when House of Gucci came out by Ridley Scott in 2021. My wife and I went to see that and we're saying, what a ridiculous, stupid disaster this thing is. And then uh, there was a slow uh, evening uh, a few months ago when it was on streaming and we watched that, and we were riveted. I, I had a completely different reaction. I'm glad I didn't review it. I'm not thinking, you know, it's kind of an interesting picture. The story is well told. This is a crazy example I'm citing, but it's one, of the, it's one of the stranger examples I can think of where my initial reaction was completely different from when I rewatched something. Oftentimes I find that my initial reaction was fairly close to what I thought in the long, in the long run, which I think the House of Gucci example is very unusual.
0: Everyone is so divided on it. People hate it. People love it. So it makes sense to revisit it and have a different opinion on it.
1: Well, in a uh, continuing on the streaming thing, I'm giving away my age here, but, but I remember seeing Brian De Palma's body double at its original screening at the Motion Picture Academy in 1984. The audience was jeering it, laughing at it. I hated every minute of it. And it, it, the Criterion Channel was airing it recently and I I tried watching it again and it was a thousand times worse than I even remembered it to be. So my original instincts were absolutely correct on that one. So <laughs> you never know.
0: Well, actually this brings in one of my favorite stories I've heard you tell was the Quentin Tarantino Reservoir Dog story. Oh dear. <laughs> Would you mind telling that story?
1: Sure. So a friend of mine who was a publicist, uh, Marina Bailey, uh, she still is a publicist, heard that i was going to go to the sundance film festival it was the only time i went and it was going to be for the 1992 sundance film festival and she said oh there's a film i worked on called reservoir dogs you should go see that when it opens i said oh great and i got there and the catalog came out and they made it seem very appealing they said oh this is in the tradition of stanley kubrick's the killing it's like a neo-noir great i love noir i love neo-noir and there was a 10.30 p.m. screening at this battered little multiplex screening theater. I think it was the Holiday Theater. The Projectionists called it the Horror Day because the projection was just awful there. And it was a late night screening. It was packed. And they proudly introduced the director of the film, Quentin Tarantino, who came up and Elizabeth... If you told, if you were speaking to me from the future and said, I want you to pay attention because this guy is going to be a major, major director. He's going to be written about. The French are going to love him. He's going to win a Palme d'Or. I would have said, woman, you're insane. (laughs) I mean, he's there, he's in a t-shirt. He's like, ah, this is like so exciting. I mean, CAA hasn't seen this movie yet, man. He's like, you know, expletive, expletive, expletive. This is like amazing. And he sat down. And I'm saying, I could have given a more articulate introduction after 10 beers, right? He sits down next to me. He's right there, right? I'm on an aisle seat and the thing is starting. And he's loving the picture. He's laughing at all the jokes. And I'm saying, "Wow, well, this is not working for me, but I'm smiling and trying to be polite. And, you know, this thing's getting nastier and nastier. And we're getting to the scene where one of the criminals ties up a cop to a chair And he's pouring gas and he's throwing matches around. And there's this song in the background that's sort of ironically commenting. And Tarantino is snickering and slapping his thigh and loving it. And I'm saying, this is a very uncomfortable moment for me right now. I have to leave. And I grabbed my knapsack and my jacket and headed out and left. And, And I don't like doing that, especially if the director's there, you know, but I just couldn't take it. And I ran into a couple of women in the parking lot. It was January, it was snowing, and they had left too at the same moment. We just looked at each other and it was like, WTF, right? And she said, well, I I hope he likes his film, you know? And when all the reviews came out, I just couldn't believe it, Uh, you know? So I, that was my, (laughs) so that was my initial uh, experience with the the Tarantino at at Sundance. (laughs)
0: I can't believe you walked out right next to Tarantino, one of the best regarded directors. He's one of my favorites, and uh, I can't
1: believe you were able to do that. Well, the thing is, I believe that the critics, the whole media hype behind him were a lot of older critics who were trying to be hip, and they were all afraid of saying negative things, especially when Pulp Fiction came out. I mean, come on. It was almost impossible to find a negative word oh and it's continuing reservoir dog you're gonna you're gonna love this one so the film opens in milwaukee right and i'm reading the milwaukee sentinel at the time i'm i'm a stringer for the milwaukee journal the journal was the evening paper the sentinel was the morning paper the critic at the sentinel a woman wonderful woman by the name of alfreda abbey reviewed reservoir dogs and nervously gave it a negative review and I, I ran into her at a screening a few days later. It was just the two of us. And I said, first of all, thank you so much for your review of Reservoir Dogs. And she looked very sheepish and she said, I thought I was the only one that didn't like that. I, I... And now you have to cut her some slack. She was at the Toronto Film Festival. She was interviewing Harvey Keitel who had just made Reservoir Dogs and he had just made Abel Ferrara's Bad Lieutenant. And he said, you need to see these pictures. I'm gonna set up screenings for you of both of them. And she had to see them back to back. I don't think that's healthy for a critic. But anyway, I've learned to accept Quentin. I've learned to accept him. I admire his passion for the cinema. He knows a great deal. I love the fact that he insists on shooting film, that he's not shooting stuff in HD. But I, I still felt a little hard pressed to come up with things to talk about after seeing Once Upon a Time in Hollywood when I was asked to lead a discussion on it afterwards, because I still feel there's a serious superficiality over a lot of his work. But that is me.
0: Do you remember the first time your work was published?
1: I do, Elizabeth. True story. I was working miserably in a summer job at a CBS affiliate in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and hated the job. And I had this crazy idea of writing an article about Milwaukee movie theaters, like a a consumer's guide to what are the better theaters, what theaters have the good projection, the good seating and so on. And I called a wonderful editor I knew at the Milwaukee Journal who was also a film professor at the university, Dominic Paul Noth, who was a mentor of mine. And I, I I I instantly told him on the phone, do you think there might be something here for an article? He said, Max, are you pitching me an article? I said, I guess I am. He said, well, let's try it. Why don't you write something and we'll see? And I wrote this total atrocity that he miraculously cleaned up but published. And it came out around 1980. And boy, did that get an angry response from the circuits. They were very upset when it came out. How dare you criticize our small shoebox theaters and our bad projection? But (laughs) I was very naive. And then... They had me review some films. I was very young and very green and that started them using me as a stringer. He was very kindly invited me to come back and because they were between critics and I became a second string re- stringer reviewer there. And so that's when I was first seeing stuff published. I was around 20 at the time. I was away from it from t- for 10 years because I moved to Los Angeles to work in, in the entertainment industry for a while. And I remember saying to myself, if I ever get a chance to review films again, I'm gonna be a lot more conscientious and professional. And I did get another chance and I think was much better the second time.
0: When you said you moved to Los Angeles, is this when the shift of new Hollywood was ending and you were like 80s films, awful, and you had to change it?
1: Yes, uh, the girlfriend I had at the time, who was now my wife, we both realized we had to make some changes and neither of us had lived in Los Angeles and we both wanted to get into the industry. And her background was entertainment marketing and she continued to work in that field. And yes, I I felt, here's what happened. The whole Heaven's Gate thing happened where it was the the end of the age of the auteur, uh, the studios were seizing power again, old Hollywood, or the the new old Hollywood was out, the, the new new Hollywood was in. And I was saying, okay, I need to think like an executive now, not not as a filmmaker. I need to think like someone who's going to supervise movies. And I'm going to go out to L.A., and I want to take over a studio and I'm going to bring things back to the way they were in the early 70s. We're going to make director driven films like The Conversation and Chinatown and and so on and so forth. And I learned, well, it's a little more difficult than that. It's uh, the system had changed so much and had gotten so corporatized that things were moving in a direction that was untenable. But I learned a lot. I learned so much about the administrative side once I started working at some of the entertainment companies.
0: Those films, The Conversation, Chinatown, those wouldn't be made today. Those are not the kind of films you see today. Those don't get enough funding. It's a real shame.
1: It's hard to imagine a studio funding those. Maybe a streaming service, but you know what? Maybe a streaming service three years ago. I don't know if they do it now, but maybe four years ago, perhaps. But it's very difficult to imagine those things getting made. And they were getting made because the studios were confused. They were just trying to find younger audiences. They didn't know what was going to work. They were basing the projects on the previous successes of the directors and figured, well, he's a big director. Coppola, he made The Godfather. Let's let him make the conversation. And then they were horrified when they saw how unusual the film was.
0: We had talked about Clute before and how excellent that film is. And I recently watched the 1981 film that Pecula did with Jane Fonda called Roll Over.
1: Roll Over. Oh, dear. I I had to review that when it came out.
0: That, Train wreck. It's just amazing how you can see 70s Pecula in one way. And then 10 years later, it's just 80s. <laughs> I'm a big Jane Fonda fan. I love her work. I love the Fonda family. I'm I- fond
1: of the Fondas myself.
0: <laughs> but that film, it was just, it was clear. The 80s have swept in. New Hollywood is over.
1: I don't understand that decline because then the following year pakula made sophie's choice which is a respectable piece of filmmaking but clearly some of the magic that had taken place in the 70s could not be recaptured and i can't speak for his case but in other in other examples of other directors there was so much self-destructive behavior with directors such as hal ashby and coppola and i'm glad scorsese's with us but he by his own admission went through some tough times himself. So that didn't help the, the situation. And that book by Peter Biskind, Easy Writers, Raging Bulls, goes into some of that, some of those issues that these directors faced that ultimately had a bad effect on, on Hollywood filmmaking.
0: Luckily, De and Raging Bull came to him, and we now have Scorsese with his many, many incredible films.
1: Yes, and I'm curious about the new one. Uh, I haven't read much about it, but I'm looking forward to seeing it even though I'm, I'm going to be shielding my eyes a lot. It sounds pretty tough.
0: It's tough right now because it just debuted, but Leonardo DiCaprio is my favorite actor, so I I can't help but be a little curious. But it's going to be a long wait till October.
1: <laughs> no, it, it will be. And and DiCaprio, I, I'm very good at spotting talent. I remember the first time I saw him was in This Boy's Life with De Niro, and I said, this kid has something. Wow. And then he did... What's Eating Gilbert Grape? And I remember seeing him in the basketball diaries, you know, and then he had to ruin it all with his Romeo and Juliet and Titanic. But, you know, there's still talent. I know, I know. It's heresy, heresy.
0: Oh, that one hurt.
1: Sorry, I withdraw the statement. You can edit this out. No. But no, I'm a, I'm a huge DiCaprio fan. I really am. Really am.
0: Titanic is my tide for favorite film. I love it so much.
1: <laughs> no, it's. I was talking to a, a very dear friend, a young woman from China, and I, I let some of my feelings on Titanic slip. And she looked at me as though I, was, I had harmed her dog. And I've wanted to apologize so much since then. I don't know if I'll ever make it up to her. But in a future presentation I'm doing on costume design, I definitely want to include some of the Titanic costumes. So I think that's my way of showing contrition for my statements, just now.
0: I'm so used to it. One of my best friends is a film aficionado, and she hates Titanic, so I get criticism all the time for liking it, so (laughs) I'm used to it, unfortunately. It's
1: just one of the crosses we have to bear, Elizabeth. We Mm -hmm. all have our films like that. I totally sympathize.
0: (laughs) So, you got a lot of criticism for your first work that was published. Were you conflicted with how you felt between the reaction versus, wow, I just got published for the first time, this is so exciting?
1: Good question. My editor Dominic Paul Noth was so supportive that I didn't have time to feel too sad about it, because I, I think I felt guilty hearing that there was some complaints. He said, "Oh, one of the theaters called me up on the phone and they were complaining about a point in the article when you said this." And I said, "Look, Jim, I've been at your theater and I've had similar experiences as Max did, so he was always he was on my side, and I think that took away some of the some of the sting from it, but." He then, shortly thereafter, had offered me some additional writing work, which also made up for it. Although he had a lot of work as an editor to clean up my prose, trust me.
0: (laughs) Does writing come naturally to you? Is that something you enjoy or regard more as a job? It comes
1: naturally to me now, but at the time it did not. And I think all writers who are starting out, reviewers, critics, journalists, you have your moments early on where you're spending hours trying to figure what the opening paragraph is going to be. And I can't believe that's how it was, but it was that way. I remember seeing a film screening on a Tuesday night, it would get out at 10, 15. I would have to go right down to the newspaper because the city desk needed it the next morning. And I might be there till one in the morning trying to, and finally I would sweat something out. But now it's so much easier. It becomes somewhat second nature after you've done it over and over again. Although there's nothing like the editorial. Editorial filtration can be very helpful, I think, which we sometimes miss now because of the internet, whatever you write gets posted right away.
0: Mm -hmm. Who was your first interview with?
1: My first interview. One of the first I can think of is a woman who made up a troika of producers who produced a film by Lee Grant, the actress directed a film called Tell Me a Riddle with, oh, goodness gracious, with Melvin Douglas. And there were three women who produced the film. They called themselves The Godmothers, and it was independently produced. And one of those producers came in to Milwaukee, and I remember interviewing her for the Sunday newspaper. So that that was one of the first interviews I had there. We didn't get a lot of big people coming through Milwaukee. The bigger interviews came later when I was in Well, actually, ironically, the biggest, the bigger interviews came later when I was writing for Milwaukee, but spent some time in D.C. and in L.A. and got to interview some bigger names at that time.
0: What was the biggest interview you've ever had?
1: Oh, man, for my money. Well, this is this this is this is a tough one, because think about this. You've got Vim Vendors, Costa Gavras and Mike Lee. Now, how do you how do you juggle that? Those are pretty big names.
0: Vim, you interviewed him. Vim Vendors, I inter-
1: I interviewed Mike Lee one day at the, the Chateau Marmont in Los Angeles, and then Vim Vendors the next day. I was so grateful to talk to Vendors. He was so nice. Mike Lee was really tough on me because I asked some really stupid questions. He had every right to be angry with me, but he was uh, he was merciless. And Vendors was so chill. He was dressed all in black, like a, one of those Sprockets characters from SNL. He had black shoes and a black tie. It was for Far Away So Close, his follow-up movie to uh, the, the famous one, The Black and White, the, oh my gosh. Wings of Desire? Thank you. That's like saying that movie, Citizen Kane. No.
0: Casablanca?
1: Exactly. <laughs> so he was there talking about the Far Away So Close, and I got to interview him, and he, he was he was wonderful.
0: Wow. And you also interviewed Peter Fonda, which is... Fascinating to me.
1: I interviewed him on by phone. I was out of town. I, I think I was in Boston, and he was available for publicity promoting the Steven Soderbergh film *The Limey*. And we had a phoner, and he was a riot. He he told some really funny stories about. Oh yeah, I remember in the sixties, man. Terrence Stamp and I, we went partying one night, man. And yeah, it was it was that kind of an interview. And and I remember asking him about working with Steven Soderbergh were you not sure what to expect were you not surprised by the results and he said that what he loved was the fact that all of Steven Soderbergh's films look different that they don't have the same look to them and he found that a really interesting challenge as an actor but he was also a very entertaining interview
0: I imagine he's as cool as he seems from Easy Rider and it sounds like it. I got that
1: impression, and I know other people who've worked with him, and they always had very kind things to say.
0: Wow, that's <laughs> so cool. <laughs> <laughs> so, has a filmmaker ever reached out to you about a review that you made about their film?
1: Good question. I am so fortunate that didn't happen. Whew. I did have a very angry man. Oh, you're, you're gonna. You, this is another thing you're gonna probably hold against me. I hope you don't. I'm the one person in the country who didn't buy into the Robert Rodriguez myth with El Mariachi, okay? And when when I reviewed El Mariachi, when it came out, the movie that was made for $7,000, please. Okay, I questioned a lot of things. I said, this was not made for $7,000. They had to enlarge it to 35 millimeter. There was another half million dollar cost associated. I mean, I put this in my review because by that time I learned a little more about production. And there was a presumably a Mexican gentleman wrote a very angry letter thinking that I had I was a betrayal and I had insulted the Hispanic filmmaking and that I'm killing the movie's chances at finding an audience. And and I felt sorry I'd hurt his feelings. <laughs> but Wow. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I don't think they published that one. But that was the only one I can think of as a whole got out of the habit of reading negative feedback because, you know, it, it does affect you. I think there was a blogger somewhere, someone who had seen a presentation I'd given at the Smithsonian, and I could tell he was about to make some digs, and so I just logged out at that point. But you develop sort of a thicker skin as you move on.
0: Who has been your dream interview?
1: Well, I mean, I'd love to interview Scorsese, just because of the film knowledge there. The fact that he's seen everything and can just add so much there. Mm -hmm. So for for Scorsese, for the film knowledge... I would love to have interviewed Orson Welles for just the cultural and historical knowledge. I know he hated talking about his own movies, but I, I just think there would have been a lot to have uh, learned from him. That would have been fascinating to me. Uh, there's there's a director who's who's with us, who's just made, what he threatens is his last film, but I hope England's Ken Loach keeps going. I would love to interview him just because of his political history in England and all the films he's made on intense political subjects and he's a controversial figure and i would love to interview him and maybe i'll do that before the end of the year when i'm in london
0: (laughs) that would be incredible that would be
1: i mean i wish that i could have met francois truffaut i hear he didn't like people who were taller than he was so he probably wouldn't have liked me but i would have (laughs) loved to have met him and because there's also that knowledge there, that knowledge that he could have shared.
0: That's how I feel about Tarantino. He seems like the ultimate film aficionado that I want to talk with.
1: In all fairness, I've heard he's very, apparently, very nice, and you know, he's been people I've known who've worked with him, pretty laid back, and he knows a great deal, and he's been involved in restorations of films and uh, providing exhibition for filmmakers or for unusual films that haven't been seen in a long time, and. You know we need more voices like that
0: back to scorsese for a moment you did a presentation well a lecture on scorsese and de niro their intense collaboration was that something that because of you being such a fan of his work was that something that you had been hoping to do a lecture on his work
1: that is an excellent question i'm trying to remember what triggered that project i don't believe somebody requested it it may have come out of the fact that i needed to fill a slot during a semester when I was teaching continuing education. This is a 10 week course, I only have nine ideas. Wait a minute, how about De Niro and Scorsese? Okay, let's go with that. I believe that's how that that came from. Shall we say that it came out of that. And then I've added added a little to it over the years as they've made more films together.
0: You projected films in the 800 seat Paradise Theater in (laughs) Milwaukee, Wisconsin. (laughs)
1: Sorry, go ahead.
0: Which films did you project at this theater that I can't even process the enormity of
1: you know it's it's the old joke is what I really want to do is direct well my, my big being the ultimate nerd what I really wanted to do was project I thought it would be so cool to be in one of those booths threading a 35 it's called crazy who thinks this way so when I heard that this neighborhood theater of volunteers was looking for projectionists I said oh sure I'd love to learn how oh my god So that was very humbling. I think I I projected 30, 40 films. A lot of these were classic films from the 30s. I mean, for example, just because I rewatched it the other day, Charles Lawton's Night of the Hunter with Robert Mitchum, one of the all time greats. We ran that at the Paradise. I ran, I've never liked this movie, but Gone with the Wind is a legend. I I didn't run all 13 reels. There was another projectionist. We, We took turns on that one. All right, the, the notorious case, the one that really almost put me in a hospital, was I naively, when I heard that they had found a 70 millimeter print of My Fair Lady, I said, I wanna do this. I To be able to run a 70 millimeter film, so exciting. Oh my God, it was such a nightmare where, first of all, you have to add different gears and the film is going all these different directions than it normally does. It's running faster, it can break easier. I broke the film uh, several times. So it was a learning experience and it prepared me for when I was a museum curator and we had 35 millimeter, I was able to converse with the projectionists and say, okay, now you wanna make sure to use the right aspect ratio plate there. And we gotta worry about the changeover cues are hard to see. And this next reel has to be cleaned up a bit because there are some scratches and I'd work on that. The sprockets, it trained me. <laughs>
0: Learned a lot from that job.
1: (laughs) I learned a lot and it was exciting. When it went well, it was pretty exciting. I think my favorite was running Stanley Donnan's Funny Face with Audrey Hepburn because it was a brand new 35 print and it was clean and the cues were perfect and it was all there.
0: Wow. I've never seen an 800 seat theater, but I imagine it doesn't get sold out often. And the sound and the visual is just incredible.
1: It's true, and what's weird is the mono soundtracks, the old mono sound systems in some of those theaters were so outstanding, they actually felt like surround sound. I remember in Milwaukee at the Performing Arts Center, there was a period when they were running some 35 prints in the 70s, and they were showing a, uh, an Astaire Rogers musical, and the sound was unbelievable. And I remember they, were, they once showed Cabaret by Bob Fosse, and at one point, I thought there were people talking behind me, but it was the soundtrack. And it was not a stereo print. But the sound in the old days, even for mono, the the way they regulated it was extraordinary.
0: That's the kind of theater I want to see Apocalypse Now in.
1: Yes, I. It is, uh, you'll never be the same again. It's a little overwhelming in, in that process.
0: <laughs> My friends and I joked, it was part of our 70s film class. We joked there's life before Apocalypse Now and there's life after Apocalypse Now. Yeah. And that's one that you have to see on a big screen. You can't watch it on a computer or a regular television screen.
1: No, it's true. When it came to my hometown, they dumped it. This is the original release. They dumped it in these small megaplexes or multiplex theaters in 35 millimeter. And I said, I am not going to see it this way. And I waited a year. Everybody else had seen it. I wasn't the cool guy because I didn't see it. And they finally, for a limited time, one theater brought a 70 print. And by that time, everyone had seen it. And I went with a buddy to see it, and it was worth the wait.
0: How has your taste in film shifted or evolved over time? Great question. I would say
1: that I have become more focused on American or Hollywood made films from the thirties, the forties and the fifties. I always loved them. I always watched them, but I would say over the last 25 years, I have really been focusing on more films from those decades. Even though I thought I was an authority, I realized I knew nothing. So my my taste hasn't changed as much, except perhaps my taste for darker themed films has backed off a bit as in my 20s and 30s, I loved really dark, gritty, edgy stuff. And now I tend to want to steer away from some of that. I think the more filmmaking I do, the more... I can see through what other people do in their work. I was hoping it would be more humbling for me and I wouldn't be just so judgmental. But now I can say, oh, come on. You just set the camera there and they're just walking in and out of the shot. You just photographing somebody walking across a park. I could have done that. (laughs) In some ways, I'm a little more critical of, uh, of artsy movie making than I have been.
0: What are some film milestones throughout your life that really made an impression on you?
1: So you you have the Horned the Blows, which I saw at seven. The following year, I, mean, I, I don't think, I, I was not even eight yet. Uh, I saw 2001, A Space Odyssey by Kubrick. So that was a milestone by every stretch of the imagination. And I think living through the, the 70s, uh, the, that new Hollywood era, we didn't call it that necessarily, but observing the work by Robert Altman and Scorsese and Kubrick, and others of that time, those were milestones, because you you saw that the cinema was evolving, that it was achieving something that it hadn't achieved before. And to live through that was, was very, very exciting. Those are a couple of things that stand out, just from in my personal experience.
0: What'd you think of McCabe and Mrs. Miller?
1: When I first saw it, I didn't understand it, but I remember finding it visually stunning, even as a kid, And just wishing I could have understood what they were saying because of the the garbled soundtrack was notorious. But I remember going to see it at that theater that I later projected films at with my mom because it was R-rated. I needed my mom to take me. And there was an older woman who was the manager. And she said, I do not think this is an appropriate film for you to take your son to. There are things in this film that are just not right. And my mother said, well, yes, I thank you for pointing that out. And the woman in the theater was right. I probably was a little young for that, but I'm glad I saw it because it was, it was quite amazing. The look of the film and the, the, the texture of the film and the details were... So that's what made that whole 80s era that I know you and I have talked about before harder to sit through because there were things that the 70s either had deconstructed and dismissed and satirized that the eighties were suddenly embracing again, certain approaches to storytelling, certain themes, uh, identifying with forces that we already identified as not being positive forces in our lives or our society.
0: There are a lot of big differences between seventies and eighties films, but one that I've found is that music complements the work of films in the seventies and eighties, the movie goes to fit the music. You see that with, I know you don't like this film and the series, but Rocky, But Rocky (laughs) IV, see, I I know, I know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. That's when
1: I knew it was over. When I saw Rocky at the Paradise, I said, it's over, the 70s is over. It's (sighs) going to change now. Please continue.
0: Rocky IV, it's very much at times like a music video. And Hmm. after watching films from the 70s and New Hollywood, I think I have a different impression on it. I am a fan of Rocky. It's ingrained in me. My dad loves it. We watch it whenever it's on TV.
1: The thing with Rocky and what other movies did in the 80s, although Rocky was 76, it was building on what other filmmakers like Scorsese had done. And I felt, at least movies in the 80s, they missed the point. As you said, they were just throwing the music in there to fit the, or whatever it was, whatever order that you described was absolutely accurate. Did you say fitting the movie to the music or vice versa? The,
0: the movie is fitting to the music, whereas the music in 70s films, like the brilliant soundtrack of McCabe and Mrs. Miller, complements right. the visual and the actual film of of that I lost my train of thought but no but you're absolutely right and the idea of using
1: source music which became huge but when scorsese did it in mean streets and when Bogdanovich did it in the last picture show and you know with george lucas and american graffiti the, the music was appropriate and and was not just there for the sake of being there whereas later i just got the impression they were just trying to get something to fit
0: yes and the happy endings are a necessity for eighties films, whereas seventies films, it just plays out how it should be and how life is.
1: It's true. Uh, we were so we were just getting so used to seeing these downbeat endings that when the happy endings came along, it it really seemed corny. I think because there are times when it just doesn't make sense to have an upbeat ending in a narrative, and sometimes it does. But that was another a great shift that was evident.
0: You mentioned source music. First one that did it, Easy Rider. Yeah,
1: that's right. That's right. Yeah, that was so. That was sixty-nine. So that was but that mm-hmm. was uh, right on the eve of the last picture show and Scorsese's work.
0: Yeah, launching the new Hollywood movement along with The Graduate, Bonnie and Clyde, Midnight Cowboy. Mm-hmm. I think those were the few that are often listed as. Launching. Yeah.
1: No, it, it's true. That that was a big, big shift in the late '60s. There was a very entertaining book are probably familiar with it, Pictures at a Revolution, which came out a couple of years ago, in which you would love, oh God, you would love this book. It deals with 1967, the five films that were nominated for Best Picture. There is The Graduate, In the Heat of the Night. There's Bonnie and Clyde, In Cold Blood. And then there's Dr. Doolittle, this catastrophe of a musical. And they go through this incredible shift that's taking place that year in Hollywood. And it's the eve of this new Hollywood that's going to be taking over for a few years. So Pictures at a Revolution, very much worth reading.
0: I'm going to have to find that. That sounds uh, interesting. Even the, the Easy Rider to Raging Bull book that you mentioned, that's another one I got to find.
1: Oh yeah, no, those are those are must reads and very, very engrossing. Now, now, granted, they mostly are focusing on West Coast filmmakers. They don't talk about some of the filmmakers in the East Coast area who were a little more stable than those in Los Angeles in the late 60s, early 70s, but it's still very much worth reading.
0: I know you're a Hitchcock fan, and you told me that Notorious is his best film. I was surprised by this since most people in the film community regard Vertigo as the best Hitchcock film. So why do you think Notorious is his best film?
1: I think it works on so many levels where the chemistry between the two stars is extraordinary. The narrative, they had something like a year to prepare the movie and to he had all this preparation time to really work with ben hecht on the script and shape the narrative and the word journey is so overused i know but the journey the characters take is so beautifully presented and in a way those two characters the cary grant character and the ingrid bergman character are among the most fully developed of hitchcock's characters because as much as i enjoy his works The characters can sometimes be very thinly drawn and a little superficial, not very fully developed. In Notorious, you really (laughs) are feeling the suffering she's going through and you're getting a sense as to why he's treating her so badly because he's in love with her and he's trying to extricate himself from the situation. And that makes the whole thing a lot more painful. And then there's the whole political intrigue and the Claude Rains character is also a very fascinating villain where he's pathetic and he's menacing at the same time. The relationship between him and his mother is very twisted and disturbing it just works as a film noir as a romance as a political parable vertigo i always loved but it's it's an unusual one it's it's a problem picture in many ways for some people but definitely ranks with one of hitchcock's finest achievements as well
0: do you remember the first hitchcock film you watched
1: the birds in my Uh generation the first time we saw it was on television It was at a San Francisco hotel room. I was with my brother, our parents were out, and I was just terrified. And then I started going to see, I do remember seeing as a kid, we went to a Jerry Lewis movie and they actually ran the trailer for The Birds. It was a reissue or something, but there was Hitchcock hosting. And I'm saying, who is this strange looking man? And that was my first exposure to Hitchcock. And the first Hitchcock I actually saw in its original release was his second to last film, Frenzy. R-rated and I forced my father to take me and he didn't want to because he was a very sensitive man and this was about a serial rapist he said you shouldn't be seeing this there are terrible things and I said I have to see it dad please and uh, I was of course hiding under my seat I was so freaked out by the movie but that was my first Hitchcock on the big screen
0: I went through the list of all the lectures and presentations you've done over the years there are so many incredible topics I wrote down a bunch but it's most of the page actually because I mean the therapeutic power of cinema sounds fascinating.
1: It was requested by an organization of people who work in healthcare and they requested it and it was fascinating. I'd love to do it again sometime but that was just one one time.
0: And then Ingmar Bergman in America, Italian Cinema Yesterday Today and Tomorrow, Cold War Hollywood, The Blacklist Years.
1: That's my favorite. Really? because I'm really passionate about the whole era of when artists were being persecuted by the industry, by the government for their political views. I think it's very relevant today. And it's very powerful and needs to be remembered. And that's one that, to me, that's the most important.
0: I just learned the other day the term graylisted because Henry Fonda was graylisted.
1: Isn't that interesting, Elizabeth? I wondered what was going on there because there was this this seven or eight year period where he wasn't making films and he was on Broadway.
0: Yeah, it was, I think, Fort... I haven't seen this one, Fort...
1: Fort Apache? Yes. And then Mr. Roberts, nothing happened to him. Mr. Roberts,
0: yeah. There was some TV things or cameos that he did. He has some, a few credits listed, which is why I never caught it. But there was that break of several years where he wasn't making films.
1: And no one's talked about that. I'm so glad you mentioned that because that's something that needs to be further explored it's amazing what we find out and uh, people are still in denial and don't like discussing it i tracked down i believe it was the daughter of an actress who i had questions about i said was your was your mother blacklist and the daughter was no no i don't know what you mean she just decided to go and do and, and go to broadway after she made that one film for alfred hitchcock and i said mm-hmm. And then I was I was discussing this with some other people and we were like we were saying, no, something must have happened. And it turns out that she was traveling in some circles that were considered offensive to the FBI. So
0: you also continue. I'm sorry. No, that's OK. 1971, the year in film, Clute, Dirty Harry and McCabe, Mrs. Miller, is 71. McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Great year for film.
1: Clockwork Orange and Polanski's Uh, Macbeth
0: and Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward, first couple of the screen. I watched the Paris Blues talkback, which was a great conversation. I loved that film. I just watched it last week. My friend and I are actually gonna do an episode on Paris Blues soon.
1: Oh, great. That's, I oh, good it. for you. Yeah, it's fascinating. And uh, you remember we we were talking to Newman's daughter, Melissa, and and it was fascinating to hear her perspectives on things.
0: That must've been incredible to interview her.
1: Yes, it was uh, very funny. I'll share one anecdote that I thought was kind of funny. When I was doing my presentation, I discussed the Newman and Woodward made a slapstick comedy together called Rally Round the Flag Boys. Leo McCary directed it, late 50s. Everybody hates it. It was It was not well received. I watched it at the height of the COVID thing. My defenses must have been down because I was laughing a lot during this thing. And I shared that with Melissa Newman and she was horrified. And I said, well, it's kind of subversive in a way. And she said, yeah, if you watch it backwards. <laughs> anyway, that was my Melissa Newman story. She was a riot.
0: She seemed very nice. She had great comments on the film and talking about Cindy um, Poitier and someone else. Oh, Louis Armstrong.
1: She's a jazz singer herself. Is she really? And she just performs in her community. She doesn't travel. There are people who think she's good enough to travel all over, but she prefers to just do it locally.
0: That, so that was cool. very cool. You also did a talk back on Casablanca, which you describe Bogart as loyal to no one and I think that's a great way to describe a very common character trait for his roles. In Key Largo he says I fight no one's battles but my own. Yeah. And in to have and have not, he plays by his own rules, which tends to bother supporting characters. And his allegiance is to no one. He's not afraid of authority figures and he doesn't give them power over him. So your quote about that, it just brought back this little analysis that I made of him. That's so
1: interesting. Because in a way, he has to be dragged kicking and screaming to be a human being in a lot of his films. He, under great duress, finally ends up doing the right thing, but he doesn't want to in the beginning.
0: The classic Bogart character you see in so many of his great films. He's his own person, loyal to no one, and uh, I just love that comment that you made. Thank
1: you. And thank you for embellishing. I love your observations as well.
0: Are you still discovering more films or do you get to a point where you feel like you've seen almost everything?
1: I am discovering them all the time. And uh, there's so many things I'm seeing for the first time that are finally being made available after not being available for centuries, it seems. And sometimes they turn up on YouTube. Sometimes a specialized DVD label or Blu-ray label will offer them. So I'm constantly discovering new things. And, and it's sad in a way because historians depend on what's available. And so many times critics and academics are basing their theories on cinema, on what's available. And it could be that there were other wonderful films the same year that are equally good, if not better, that just were never, never made available. They, they have been buried in vaults or they've been tied up in litigation. Or maybe they got lost in some way, so the the discovery never ends. It's always exciting, as a matter of fact, to discover a new film or an old new film.
0: Yeah, when you discover a whole different era, it's like starting over in a way, and you just find all these new films to enjoy and analyze. Yeah,
1: and it's shocking, Elizabeth, what's out there that you don't know about. And I, and I have, forgive me for not remembering this, but uh, these specifics. But I, there was one DVD company that put out some rare independent movies from 1934 and there was one film that was 20 years ahead of its time in terms of editing its whole technique was nothing what we were seeing in hollywood that year and no one knows it and it's things like that 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 are out there waiting to be discovered and that's what makes it exciting you know
0: you seem to have taken an interest in Anthony Mann by not only writing a book about him, but also curating an exhibit at the Museum of the Moving Image in Astoria, New York. How did you become a fan of his work, and do you remember the first film that you saw of his?
1: <laughs> the first film I saw of his, once again, I'm seven years old, and there's a theater in Milwaukee. It's a second-run theater that either is showing double features of commercial movies, a second-run, or they're, they're slotting in some sort of naughty adult movies, or they're booking classics, and you never know what they're gonna show. And at one point, they booked an Anthony Mann film from 1958 called God's Little Acre, which was considered scandalous when it came out. And of course, my parents took me to see that when I was seven or eight years old. I was too young to know what was going on. It's lust in the Deep South, and you know, Ro- Aldo Ray and Tina Louise are necking in the marshes. And I didn't care about that. I was more amused by Buddy Hackett's comedy relief and the black and white images. I remember the black and white images very, very vividly. So that was the first Anthony Mann. And then I remember his last film when it was shown on network television, A Dandy and Aspic, watching that with my brother. And then years later, starting to discover the rest of his films. This book that I wrote just came out of an idea. I I was really eager to write, to have have a book coming out. And I realized that there hadn't been a lot written about this cycle of films that he made that were crime pictures. Most people talk about his Westerns in the 50s. And I thought, let's talk about the crime pictures because he made so many of them. And I didn't realize this was going to be an adventure of trying to solve a mystery of a man we didn't really know much about. And it became almost a mini biography at one point.
0: It's always you go down the rabbit hole with certain actors and directors. I'm definitely guilty of that. So it's it's nice to see when other people do that too. And I'm not the only one who You're takes not the this only journey. crazy
1: person out there, Elizabeth, who, oh, who, good. Oh, who good, keeps digging and digging. And when you discover something, oh, this is just the beginning, right? Now we have to dig even further, right?
0: Absolutely. You just keep going. There is always a web. You connect it to this and this, it never ends.
1: You read the book, then you read the footnote at the end, and then you read the citation from the footnote. You track down the citation at the library, find out where they got their information from, and you you find another book along the way.
0: And it goes on and on and on. It goes on on and on. (laughs) Have you ever been starstruck?
1: I was starstruck the last year we were in Los Angeles. We had a connection at the old Premier magazine. She got us tickets to the Independent Spirit Awards, and it was unbelievable who was there i mean i shook anthony hopkins a hand he was there right as silence of the lambs had just come out jody foster was on the stage roger Carman was given a special award francis coppola was a keynote speaker robert altman was given a special award uh johnny depp was there we sat at a special table next to nicholas rogue and his gorgeous wife teresa russell who i madly in love with her since seeing her in bad timing but it was all over the place. And there were independent filmmakers like Charles Burnett was there who directed To Sleep With Anger. That was totally a starstruck experience. And to me, the the Academy Awards was always an anticlimax after that because I saw, I thought, Oliver Stone. That was right after JFK came out. He got up and he was really in a bad mood about how the media had treated his film. But he was there. I was truly starstruck. I didn't know what to say.
0: Was this Liam Neeson
1: was there. He came up to our table and was talking to Nicholas Rogue. Oh my God! Stop me, stop me! But that was that was pretty cool. I have to say.
0: Was this when Roger Corman was given an award? But was it Nicholson and a bunch of his group was there, I like know, Peter Fonda, Bruce Stern? I know the
1: one you're thinking of. I think this may have been before that. I'm not sure, and I forget who it was who presented Corman with with the award. But like there he was, and he was acknowledging people in the audience. And uh, remember, Jim, we made that motorcycle picture together, and or he was acknowledging Coppola because they had worked on. I think it was the Wild Racers together. Uh, Coppola did some work on that, but it was very it was very funny. On top of that, just on an isolated incident, the coolest for me before that was seeing. Scorsese came into the ABC motion picture offices when I was a secretary. He was trying to pitch The Last Temptation of Christ after Paramount put it in turnaround. And I snuck into one of the offices and was putting my ear to the wall to try to eavesdrop. So those are big moments.
0: Many film aficionados have this extensive DVD collection Do you also have an extensive DVD collection? DVDs? What what are those? Yeah, people don't talk about them anymore, unfortunately. It's all streaming, but (laughs) a few of us out there, there are some DVD stores left, and I'm very grateful for that.
1: Elizabeth, you and I are going to have the last laugh here because the streaming services are cutting back on a lot of the film airings. There's going to be a lot of reduction of stuff, and a lot of stuff is not going to be as readily available. So I think DVDs are going to have to make some kind of a comeback for those of us who love cinema. Anyway, yes, I have a very extensive collection of pre-recorded DVDs and some Blu-rays and a lot of things I was able to get off of the internet and stuff. A lot of things that were recorded off of Turner Classic movies that were never available, have never been put out on DVD, and some 3,000 titles probably by now, something like 2,500.
0: Wow. Oh my God.
1: Too many, too many.
0: Do you have them all out on display?
1: Some of them are neatly filed away. Some of them the actual official DVDs are on some shelves, but I have a whole uh, database alphabetized by year, alphabetized by title. Would you expect anything less? I I would expect you to do the same thing.
0: Oh, mine are all alphabetized. Uh-huh. And I'm about to run out of room for my shelves, but I'm still finding more. I'm still trying to I just watched a DVD the other day. I borrowed from the great Dr. Gillian Smith, *The Passenger*. Oh, and I rewatched that
1: by Antonioni.
0: Oh, I love Antonioni. Amazing film. Yeah, Nicholson, great pairing.
1: Yeah, and that last scene—I I remember when that came out. It was in and out in a week in my hometown. I'll never forget that extraordinary last scene that goes on for seven some minutes as the camera is working its way through the bars of the window. And
0: this was a rewatch. So I was trying to watch closely just to make sense of this moment. It was done so brilliantly slowly to where it's kind of effortless and you don't even fully notice it until we're now outside of the window. We're seeing her, the cars are coming, she's walking away.
1: It's magnificent. And you were talking about some presentations I've given. One of my favorites that I never really get to do very often is called The Camera Dances. And it's about long camera takes from history when the equipment was much harder to move around than it is now. I mean, today they, they cheat in so many ways, but the shot you're describing was very hard to do with you know, the conventional film cameras of the time. So, uh,
0: Did you mention Touch of Evil in that?
1: Of course. Oh, that amazing opening shot, which mm-hmm. for years we couldn't see properly because they'd put titles on top of it. And then finally they found the original elements and were able to pseudo-restore it.
0: Since we've talked about the difference between 70s and 80s films, and you've told me in the past that 90s films get a little bit better, what do you think about film today?
1: Elizabeth, I, I don't know. I, I've been getting kind of discouraged. I, I'm not very fond of the, the 2020s or a lot of the 2010 stuff. Forgive me, this, this is going to annoy a lot of people, but I trace a lot of it to the changes in technology. I have not been fond of the transitioning to the digital platforms in photography and projection although we rely on them, we rely on digital projection in the venues I work at, and it's very important. But I think it has compromised film making because we're not, I don't feel I'm seeing a lot of films uh, these days. I'm seeing a lot of very slick videos. I feel like I'm looking at a, and I still believe in going to the cinema and supporting the art cinemas and paying and getting popcorn because I want these places to continue. But I come out feeling like I've, been watching a 25-foot smartphone Uh, this giant very sharp image everything is crystal clear and soulless and i don't know i think it's become when it was harder to do i think the results were more artistic directors had to know what they wanted whereas today they can have so many options and it's so easy to redo something and it's so easy to manipulate something and That coupled with, I think, the serious decline in storytelling has made for difficult viewing in my part. However, you do come across things that are very powerful and quite extraordinary. I just saw a film the other day from an Argentine woman filmmaker called Chile 76, which is beautifully done, wonderful film about the troubles in Chile in the 1970s. And occasionally I see a film that gets through the cracks that affects me very, very much, one comes to mind and i say this because it's a studio movie i don't usually say nice things about studio films but a film that definitely harkens back to the 70s is judas and the black messiah from 2021 about the killing of fred hampton which warner brothers made and released i don't know how they got that thing made there but that definitely evoked memories of films from the early 70s it had an urgency and a power to it and a vision to it as well
0: do you think film today is worse or better than the 80s? Or how would you compare the two decades or the two eras of film?
1: All right. Now, let's be fair to the 1980s. First of all, we must divide it by the United States and the rest of the world. In the 80s, yeah. it was awful filmmaking. But in Europe and in Asia, and Georgia, eh, the stuff was much, you know, French film in the 80s, there were interesting things that were made in Italy and in other parts of Europe. But it was in Hollywood, per se, that I thought that the quality was, was really bad. Has it gotten better? Has it gotten worse? I don't know. Technically, it's perhaps less interesting for me from a filmmaking perspective. But in terms of quality or maturity, maybe it's a few degrees better than it was in the 80s.
0: Interesting. Did you see Everything Everywhere All at Once? Forgive me, I did not see that. Okay, that was one that people keep saying it's this kind of revolutionized film for this era. So many people told me to watch it. I really enjoyed it, but mm-hmm. after watching films of the 70s and earlier, it was a jump from my mind. Yeah. But it was still excellent.
1: That's one that I, sorry that I didn't catch up with because I was being so good about catching all the other major releases of last year that went on for like 12 hours, movies like Tar and, and others. And so that's one that definitely i'll have to catch up with
0: i enjoyed tar some people i knew did not but it was very good it was a
1: divisive movie at least it was trying to touch on some issues i think the difficulty with a movie like tar and we see this elsewhere is its reluctance to actually take a position because if you leave too much ambiguity then it opens an audience to interpret it a variety of ways that can be good but if you're dealing with a political subject it can also be a little dangerous (laughs) Because if they're taking away opposite of what you're intending, and I think Tar, it was straddling the fence a lot, then maybe where it needed to make a decision on certain things. But that was just my thoughts.
0: Are there any actors or directors working today that stand out to you as excellent or impressive?
1: Yeah, the directors, unfortunately, and I was thinking about this, it used to be so much easier to remember who directed a film than it is now, because the names are so are so interchangeable, and I can mention movies that I've seen that I liked. But if you ask me who directed them, I was one of one of those things where I'd have to look them up. One director whose work stood out for me—we've discussed his work before. I know he did *Nightcrawler*. Tony was it? See, this is an example. This is what i This is what I'm talking about. Yeah, this is terrible. And in terms of actors. There are also actors that I see, many of them are from England because they've been properly trained, who I find very, very compelling and very versatile, but I have to look up their names because I see them a lot, but it takes some figuring to remember. I think we're in danger of not having another generation of big stars because uh, there's not a training ground for them the way there was. There used to be the, the television series which are being cut back or not as prevalent as they were. You, of course, didn't have the studios training people, but the Brits are still training new generations, so we're seeing more and more British talent springing up.
0: This has been an ongoing discussion I've had with fellow aficionados that are my age, and we've been talking about Robert Pattinson. He's the only one who is a bankable star who has done great films with franchises and blockbuster. I mean, Tennant was excellent, but he's also done incredible indie films like Good Time, and he's the only person that a few of us can really pinpoint like okay he's one of the big movie stars of his generation.
1: That's sad when there's just one person that comes to mind.
0: I mean there's a few but that's more of a certain answer. Right. And he's one of my favorites. I've been a fan since Harry Potter. There was someone actually that just spoke out about movie stars aren't trained as well as they used to be and that's why there's not so many anymore. I mean the movie stars people look to as maybe the Marvel superheroes, but there's this debate on if they are really movie stars or if they're just yeah, the superheroes.
1: Or are um, they just part of a computer? Okay, so for example, he was in the lighthouse and I, I saw that. he's kind of getting started and he is mostly affiliated with some of these bigger titles. When you mentioned that people were stating that the actors are not trained the way they were, that is a problem with a lot of the mumbling and bad elocution that we often see, especially in the streaming series. I don't know where that came from because we weren't seeing that in the, in the 2000s as much.
0: You reminded me of this very funny quote from Peter Fonda, how he said he, he'll deliver a line like Warren Beatty. He'll enunciate the first part of his line and then mumble the rest of it, <laughs> which I never caught this and I just laughed so hard. But yeah, there's a lot of mumbling. You have to really turn up your volume. A lot of people love subtitles now. Yeah. So it's it's completely different.
1: Well, it, once when I first got to New York, I was speaking to an older audience at a, a hospital that sometimes brought in speakers for special events about movies. And uh, there was a woman, she was almost embarrassed to ask. She I mean, it was an older woman and she said, why do I have trouble understanding actors today? I said, Madam, it's not your hearing, okay? It's not just you. We're all having issues with a lot of the actors today. And it's for some of the reasons that you and I have just talked about right now. What annoys me, and I think this is where I just find myself looking at stuff from earlier decades, is you can see a cheesy movie from 1958 or even 1962, and you understand everything they're saying. It It can be a horror movie or a gangster picture. It can be a beach party movie, and you can hear everything they're saying without it being effective sounding, and it's a, it's a shame that these skills are not being passed on because it's, it's going to catch up with the industry at some point.
0: Do you see directors the same way as actors, like directors who focus more on superhero films and there are directors who focus more on film as an art? And I was wondering if you see that in a similar way as the whole movie star actor debate.
1: Well, the word art is so rarely applied to cinema in this country and in our culture. Everything is associated with the marketplace and turning a profit, even the so-called indie scene, that I don't think it's treated enough as an art form seriously. I think there are directors who want to make more personal statements and have personal projects that mean a great deal to them that are not openly commercial in nature. They may be more intimate in narrative, dealing more with people facing personal obstacles instead of meteorological threats from the universe as a superhero might. So there are definitely the smaller pictures that the A-list directors today who are working on these franchise movies you mentioned would like to make. But in terms of art, it's one of those things, I know it when I see it, and I see it all the time in European cinema and an international cinema where, historically, film has been seen as an extension of music and the visual arts. It's, it is an art form that you partially subsidize, you encourage with cultural subsidies, and it's understood these may not make a lot of money, but it's for the sake of creating art that many films were made. It doesn't work that way here, which is one reason why directors with very serious artistic objectives aren't very prolific here they have difficulty they can just make a few films during their careers because they're running around looking for money whereas in europe in the old days you could have a career even if most of your films were not successful because you were heralded as an important artist as well that's a roundabout way of i don't even know if i answered the question and i apologize if i went on a tangent but
0: Oh, that's okay. I had trouble wording the question because there's just this kind of divide, and I know Scorsese has talked about film versus movies and actors, movie stars, and superhero films especially, and that seems to be why there's such a move to television Mm -hmm. because of these superhero films and these blockbusters that films that were more independent aren't really getting made or they're being put in as television shows, so...
1: It's true. And even even before the whole streaming thing became a threat to the industry, the drama was the one category of, of movie making that was facing extinction in Hollywood. One of the most depressing annual articles I always found was the Los Angeles Times calendar section article on movies coming out this year. It was always in the January issue. This is what we have to look forward to. And you'd go through saying, oh, my word, And the drama category was always very, very brief from the studios. And usually most of the dramas were French films or international movies or independent movies that had been just acquired for release. They weren't coming from major companies. So that's going to catch up with the industry. And, And yes, as a result, people turn to television or cable or the streaming services To make the kinds of projects they couldn't get made at the studios, that the studios should be making, and also people should be supporting as well. I can argue that as well. Audiences need to be more proactive.
0: It's more popular for films to be watched through streaming. And how do you see the future of theaters? Do you think Ah, there's concern or hope?
1: I have to be optimistic. Uh, It... My problem, Elizabeth, is that no one in this world with power ever calls me ahead of time to ask me my opinion when they're about to do something that's really stupid. And I wish years ago, 10 years ago, some of these independent arty distributors said, you know, Max, we have this great idea. We're going to make our movies available on demand the same day we release them to theaters. What do you think? I would have said, that's a really bad idea because you're going to be cannibalizing your business. You're going to be discouraging people from going to the cinema. But they didn't call me so that has really impacted specialized releases i do think there's a demand for the cinema here in new york city granted we have more options but we are finding at new plaza cinema where i do a lot of work people are hungry to see things and they love seeing even older films on the big screen and then having a discussion afterwards a group discussion I think you can only watch so much television after a while. You do want to experience it. I think there's a need for cinemas, but we have to fight for it. Uh, We've got to support them and uh, fight for their survival. But there's a need for it. I don't think that they're obsolete or unnecessary. In fact, this is a circular narrative in a sense. I argue that cinemas are what created stars because actors who were really popular, on television on a cable didn't become superstars until they started making films i mean tom hanks was on tv Denzel washington was on tv eddie murphy was on tv when they started making films it was the theaters that made them stars even though the audiences were much smaller so that's one reason alone that the holly hollywood should be doing a little bit more to stay on top of the exhibition scene
0: it's the best way to see a film it's really the best atmosphere the best visual, the best sound, there's nothing like it.
1: There's nothing like it, and I urge everyone who's listening, see the serious movies in the theater. Save the trivial, silly, escapist stuff for the living room because the serious stuff, you can watch it, you can talk about it afterwards, you can go for a drink or dinner, and then you leave it behind. You don't have to have it in your living room if it's a really serious movie, but the serious films are the ones that need to be supported and should be seen on the big screen.
0: are actually working on a film, as I mentioned, We Are the Damned. How is production going?
1: Yes, thank you. And it's morphed into the title noir film. I call it that noir film, one word right now. That is going very, very well. It's a project that was created using expired 35 millimeter black and white film stock. And in 2019, right before the whole pandemic thing. I was going around with a friend filming some historic buildings in Manhattan on what I hoped would be a noir theme, but I had no idea what it was going to be. Then, of course, everything came to a standstill. And then I have gotten back behind the camera with some friends playing actors, and I'm actually shocked by the results, which are turning out to be kind of interesting. So we did some filming in September. We did some filming last month. And my goal is to try to wrap up the final sections of it in, in in the next couple of months. It will not have dialogue. It will be entirely visual with sound effects and music.
0: That's very exciting.
1: I will keep you posted, Elizabeth. I wish you were here to work to, uh, on it with me.
0: I know I'm very I'm very far away, but I
1: You come to New York, we could always use help.
0: I should I mean, I have family up there, but uh
1: it has been exciting working with because I'm using a traditional 35 millimeter Aeroflex camera and Handling the actual equipment that great directors work with, is it's so pleasurable and so exciting. I just don't understand why more people aren't working more with film equipment. To me, there's a satisfaction of creating something, of building something, of handling something that you just don't get. And I've worked in all the media. I've worked with the, the digital stuff and find it useful. But I just find there's something really rewarding about handling film. And the results, I think, are beautiful. There's a texture there there's a quality that you just don't get with the other medium.
0: Have you discovered maybe an accident or just purposely which noir films inspired your new film?
1: Yeah, no, that that is a good one. I would say when I think of this new one, it seems to be a combination of things. It's a little bit people spying on other people. I mean, there's a little bit of, I'm reminded of Force of Evil with John Garfield. He's finding out that his phone is tapped. We have a lot of tapped telephones in this movie. Uh, we have detectives who are carrying around all kinds of emotional baggage who are getting too involved with some of their suspects, which brings to mind a lot of films from the 1950s, just random films that I may have seen by directors such as Phil Carlson or Anthony Mann or Samuel Fuller, kind of hard edged movies where the anti heroes are getting in a little deeper than they're supposed to. And so just random things jump out at me.
0: And as you mentioned, you work with New Plaza Cinema. You have a lot of upcoming episodes. The next episode is on Joseph von Sternberg and Marlene Diet. Marlene Dietrich. Dietrich, yes, yes. I One of those names you name. see
1: all the time in print, right? And you're like, how does yeah, that go? Always. Joseph von Sternberg, Marlena Dietrich. First of all, I'm doing an online talk about the two of them. They had this very fascinating collaboration from 1930 to 35 they made some extraordinary films together and then we're going to be showing a couple of his films that he made with her at the cinema in june and one of those i will also be giving that talk in person at the cinema as well so on june 4th but this will be another exciting presentation because it's pure cinema and such fascinating characters It's. a very compelling time of history between the two world wars as the rise of Nazism and German Expressionism working its way into filmmaking. And I don't know if you've seen any of the Sternberg-Dietrich films. They're not easily streamable, but they are all available on DVD.
0: The Scarlet Empress is the one that I saw.
1: You're a genius. You pick the best. You pick the greatest.
0: (laughs) Oh, good. The the
1: others are terrific, but that is amazing.
0: (laughs) TCM played it, and I watched it through TCM.
1: Oh, good. Bless TCM.
0: You recently did some episodes on Europe versus the censors, and one film that I love, Blow Up, Antonioni. Oh, what an ending.
1: What an ending, and a film that came out right between the collapse of the censorship code system. So the reason why the movie was such a hit was because people were expecting to see something very sexy, and it is a sexy movie, but it was sex that sold this is a pensive study of a photographer who's unwittingly involved in a criminal act, or at least visualizing it. And it is such an, an amazing piece of cinema.
0: Antonioni films are great to explore just because how ah. he eases into a plot and it's not this structure. No. You go into a film, you watch, you're just patient, and you learn, and oh, he's very original with his
1: film. He's original, and he doesn't mind annoying the audiences because he, he really loves annoying us by suddenly going in a whole other direction, And you're saying, well, wait a minute, but what about the main story point? No, no, I'm not interested in that right now. And a lot of people get very angry watching an Antonioni film, but it's pure cinema.
0: I have the opposite. I just enjoy it completely. I went through La Ventura, L'Eclipse, La Notte, The Passenger, as I mentioned, all excellent.
1: Because I remember seeing La Ventura, it was on public television as a kid, and I was furious, because here, these people are going to an island, A young woman disappears. They look for her and they say, ah, let's go back. And they never discuss her again. And I was so offended by that. I was a very pious child. That's another story. But anyway, very self-righteous child. And then in Blow Up, of course, uh, they go off the beaten path there. And Le Cleese, oh my God, people were outraged when that came out because the movie goes on seven minutes after it ends. The, The characters disappear and then the camera's just tracking around the city and neighborhoods where they were seen. And and I think in my hometown, there was a theater that cut out the last seven minutes of the from the, Oh, <laughs> gosh. This is Why the advantage of movies being shown digitally. You can't get away with that anymore as a theater owner.
0: That ending the that nice? around the neighborhood and the clock, right? That's when they have shots of the towering clock in the neighborhood.
1: I forgot the clock aspect, but yes, I think that's coming back to me now.
0: I watched it twice. I thought that was fascinating. <laughs> I have a very different opinion than, I guess, most audiences. Because you have tastes. I try. I've <laughs> over... Thanks to learning more about film, I've definitely... Uh, I think my taste has improved and my collection has gotten a little bit better.
1: So is mine.
0: <laughs> <laughs> How do you choose which films or topics to focus on?
1: Gary Palmucci is our programmer there, and Gary usually is the one who comes up with the actual titles. We'll be batting around ideas... And we're thinking, okay, are there any birthdays coming up next month? Oh, this director, if he was around, he would have been eighty or something. And oh, let's talk about one of his movies. Or November is Noir November. It's usually the month of film noir. What could we show? And Gary might say, well, what about if we talk about The Killers by Robert mac That's how it starts. Sometimes they ask, well, Max, do you have a lecture to tie into that? <laughs> and sometimes I do. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I have to create something.
0: Is there a film that you've been wanting to do a talk back on?
1: Wow, that is, well, you know, one that we just re-watched the other night. I would love to do a talk back on Charles Lawton's The Night of the Hunter with Robert Mitchum, which is just unbelievably amazing. 1955, United Artists, huge failure in its day. Poor Lawton didn't get to direct another movie, they wouldn't let him, and it's brilliant. It's terrifying, it's beautiful, it's poetic. I would love for us to do a talk on that, The Night of the Hunter.
0: Robert Mitchum is my grandpa's favorite actor ever.
1: Oh yeah, and um, my wife has a thing for him. Uh, There was another woman I used to work for, I loved her, Robin Larry Mancini. I'll clean it up for the podcast, but she said he was her fantasy. Uh So Mitchum was one of those great actors who could play a hero or a heel. He could be this very sympathetic kind of anti-hero or this absolutely terrifying presence. The original Cape Fear, he's terrifying. In Night of the Hunter, he's terrifying. But then you see other sides of him and he was very underrated. People I don't think realize what a great actor he was and how versatile he was.
0: Excellent actor. At the end of each episode, I normally give the floor to my guest if there's anything that you would like to end with, whether it be a film recommendation, a quote, a plug. Is there anything that you would like to conclude our episode with today?
1: Well, Charlie Tennyson, the young man at the time who ran the Paradise Theater where I was volunteering as a projectionist, he always told people from the stage when he was announcing upcoming films, because it was a hard market to sell movies to, old classic films to, he said, just remember, your favorite movie is the one you haven't seen yet. Keep your mind open and always explore and be curious and never be satisfied with what you've seen. And if if a movie is paying homage to another movie or referencing another movie see that other movie because they do that all the time today and and directors are often quite open about movies that inspired them but see the movies that inspired them i think you'll find it very enriching
0: and down the rabbit hole you go and down the (laughs) rabbit
1: hole you go exactly
0: thank you so much for joining me today you're my first major guest i was so excited for this and i really enjoyed this conversation Wow, I'm so sorry I went almost like two
1: hours. No, we could talk for months and it's Elizabeth, it's such a pleasure to meet somebody who is so serious about cinema as you are and what an honor to be on your program and I'd love to come back and do this again sometime.
0: I would love that. Thank you so much and thank you to everyone who listened and until next time. Bye. Go to NewPlazaCinema.com to check out Max's past talkbacks and upcoming virtual events. Special thanks to Max Alvarez, Jackie Wathan, Shannon McCrossin, Connor Overbay, Christina Morgan, Caitlin Fitzpatrick, Max McBride, Cole Echeverria, and Catherine Jakeway. This episode was recorded on May 22, 2023.